Hello and welcome to this episode of Banter on the Parkway. We are brought to you by our sponsor. We don't have a sponsor, guys. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> I am Brian from BannersOnThePartway.com, and I am joined, as always, by the Muggsy Bogues of the greater Cleveland area, Brad. How you doing, Brad? I, that's actually really flattering. I'll take that. I'm doing okay. Struggling for sleep. Had a kid break collarbone last night, but... Uh, give me the chance to do something we used to do as kids, which was sleep on the floor next to the Christmas tree. Sweet. So once her collarbone was broken, did she tap out or <laughs> on that? Are you ma- raising mentally weak kids? You know what? You don't have to answer that on podcast. That'll be a question for next time. And our <laughs> other host, you know him, you love him. You have possibly been enthralled by his kid's attempt to clone Jason Carter 10 times. It's Joel. Joel, how is it going with 11 Jason Carters? Oh, man. All Jason Carters is still undefeated on the pitch. Um, Outside of that, my life is reeling because I saw an advertisement on the Food Network for a peppermint pie that the filling was completely clear. It was like some kind of weird jelly-like substance. So I'm questioning everything I thought I knew about desserts and seasonal treats. Gross. Yeah, it looked gross. Yeah, that's not that's not okay. All right. Well, obviously the huge news in uh in the world of Xavier basketball this week was the crosstown shootout. Xavier came away with the victory there by six points, final score of seventy-three to sixty-seven over the UC Bearcats. Uh Xavier really put this game away with a huge run in the second half. Um, that w- it was a 17 to four run over the course of seven minutes where Xavier made no subs. Uh, so it's not common to see a run where it's the same five guys over seven minutes, put it together like that. But Xavier's starting five came out and just stifled UC in the second. So um, we all saw the game. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you watched the game. I can't imagine you skipped watching the Crosstown shootout, but are listening to our podcast. Uh, And if you did, you're probably our other brother, Jer, who doesn't watch sports, but does love us. So shout out to Jer. Anyway, what was you guys' favorite moment of that game? Well, I'm so glad you asked because uh, my large adult son, Quentin Gooden, turned the corner and punched on the entire city of Cincinnati. And then he took a moment to inform the crowd that this was indeed his court. Uh, He took some stick on social media because they thought he could rush back on defense. My personal opinion is that you have like 39 minutes and 52 other seconds to play defense. How many times are you going to bang on your in-town rival like that? So if he wanted to do the worm on the way back down and we played five on four while that happened, I'd have been good with it. Yeah, I'm completely with you there. You, he played great defense all game. He had a little bit of a lapse there. They got a layup. Don't care in the slightest. It was good stuff. I almost would have preferred he stood and did it in front of their bench, but we've done that once before already. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I would not prefer that, actually, because um, that ends up in, in suspensions and a lot of virtue signaling. And I'm just not sure John Brandon has it in him, to be honest. He, he looked more resigned to his fate on the sideline than St. Mick usually was. Um, you know, would John Brannon be able to come out and do a press conference and lie about tearing the jerseys off of his players? I doubt it. I really don't think he has it in him. Nah, but what was your if favorite there, moment? If there had been another fight, Mick Cronin would have been there for the press conference. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have been like, I'm suspending my UCLA players. They got to earn that jersey back. <laughs> Oh, man, I I was at work for most of the game, so I was listening to it. Um, And then I had the privilege of coming home and watching it, too. Uh, My my favorite moment was during that run. There was probably about a two-minute span where it didn't look like anybody on the Bearcats wanted the ball. Um, They would come down, hot potato it around, and eventually turn it over. One time that turned into a scramble where Najee found Q. The very next time down, Q found Tyreek for a monster dunk. I mean, they looked like they wanted no part of Xavier's defense at all. They kind of, somebody would tentatively dribble towards where Quentin Gooden was, 
looking fearful that he was going to reach around him and steal it. And, or they'd get it near Najee Marshall and that guy would kind of ease away from him. I've never watched somebody get eaten alive, but I'm assuming that's kind of what it looks like. They just wanted no part of Xavier and it was great to watch. Yeah. I think in that same vein, uh, my favorite moment was UC brings the ball down. I think they were down about seven when Xavier was starting to put their run together. And for like, 26 seconds on the shot clock they just throw the ball around the perimeter in a three-man weave terrified to put it on the floor because they don't want it taken away from them eventually it gets knocked out of bounds by uh, somebody on Xavier I don't remember who it was but when they tried to inbound it they couldn't even do that Gooden swatted it away to Marshall who ran down and punched it and um they had to call a timeout to try and regroup. And I don't know that they ever actually did regroup until it was way too late, but it was just that dominance of Xavier's defense in that moment where, I mean, Cincinnati brought the ball down, leading the basket to stem the tide and no one looked like they thought they could get it. Um, And for sure, actually they couldn't get it. (laughs) So um, now Cincinnati this year, uh, is not the Cincinnati of, say, last year. Um, Their coach is probably slightly more likable, if just by default, but they are all the way down to 51st in the Kempom rating. So does beating Cincinnati really tell us that much, Brad? I don't know. Uh, They're a team that is solid, but as we discussed (laughs) on our last podcast altogether, they're going to have to do some work to get themselves into the NCAA tournament. They're kind of a team that you look at and you think, yeah, Xavier should be beating these guys. It might be a close game, but they should take it. And it was a kind of a close game. There's a little gloss on the scoreline for the Bearcats there while Xavier went into celebration mode with about two minutes to go. It, I think the one thing it tells us is that they, the Musketeers can play an emotionally charged game in front of a huge crowd with a lot riding on it, at least in terms of bragging rights and inside the city, if not college basketball wise and come out victorious Uh, last year we didn't look good in the shootout steel looked a little bit overmatched the team looked a little bit overmatched we kind of looked like a team finding their way around and this year we were thankfully back to being the guys playing bully ball so i mean i think it told us we can bear down and beat someone that we should beat and that's exactly what we did. Yeah, kind of the same thing in the UConn game. A team that's not quite as good as they used to be can give us a run, but ultimately Xavier's the better team, and they proved that. Both of those will probably end up being top 50 opponents, so, I mean, those are good wins. I think uh, UConn and UC are going to pass each other going opposite directions, uh, not just in terms of how actually good they are, but how they're going to look on the resume. If you go to warrennolan.com, he puts together team sheets for for everybody. So you can see what your team's supposed to look like in terms of how the, the committee will view them. Right now, he's just got the RPI because the official net hasn't come out yet. But uh, UC is 63rd in the RPI, according to Warren Nolan. That's a solid Q2 win at home. But, I mean, they're like you said, they're 51st in the Ken Palm. That's with the preseason baked in. And they were 24th in the preseason. It takes until end of December to start a conference play until uh, Ken Palm's entirely free of the, you know, the preseason biases that, that he puts in to try to make a little more accurate. The way UC's been playing, by the time the calendar turns, they might be, I mean, we might be looking at a, a quadrant three win for that game against that team at home. Uh, so I think it, it tells us stuff, but I, it probably tells us more about UC than it tells us about Xavier. And it tells us that they're a team that's played two major conference opponents and lost to them both. Also managed to sneak out a loss to Bowling Green, and their best win is against Vermont at home in a game that was within touching distance until the last minute. So Colgate, Tennessee, and Iowa before they start the gauntlet that is the American Athletic Conference. I think what it told us about UC is that NIT is probably their ceiling. And what it told us about Xavier is that they beat NIT teams, which hopefully is not meaningful information for us come March. I mean, you can still pick up good wins against teams that aren't in the tournament field. Um, 
but I think we did learn something from this. Uh, last year, Xavier obviously came out and they weren't the aggressors in that game. And Coach Steele harped all week that Xavier needed to be the aggressor. And you. McNeil, um, I'm not sure he got them into their offense uh, at all, um, especially in the second half. Uh, Xavier just came out and completely dominated them for a good seven-minute stretch, and they looked like a team that was ready to just dismantle someone um, and for it to be their biggest rival. You know, I think it showed focus, and I think it showed a buy-in that we just – didn't see last year until maybe too late. And I would say it was even a step forward from what we saw last year, as far as defense and as far as buying into what coach Steele uh, talks about a lot in the press conferences. So um, <clears throat> Joel, you have a, a new award you like to give out. It's the inaugural Mick Cronin Memorial pretend tough guy award. So um, RIP Mick. Uh, you will be missed. Um, but anyway, who who won the IMCMPTGA this year? <laughs> the the prestigious, whatever that acronym was. But yeah, uh, I'm going to give it to Cincinnati Bearcats senior Jerron Cumberland. He uh, flirted with the NBA draft last year, had everybody um, talking about you know, maybe second round pick, maybe sneaks his way into the first round. You know, it's going to be a huge loss for UC if he doesn't come back. He came back. Uh, first team all-conference. UC fans think he's a borderline all-American player. And he has been steamed garbage this year. Uh, last season when things were going well, you know, the swagger was oozing off of him. About threw up in my mouth watching him in the Crosstown shootout. This year he just didn't want it. Uh, Najee Marshall took it to him 94 feet of the court. And when it wasn't Najee's job, it was somebody else's. And Jerron Cumberland ended up not even guarding Najee. They were trying to hide him on defense because he's not a real tough guy. He doesn't want to go out there and take on the best guy on the other team. He's a pretend tough guy. So shouts to you, Jerron, for your 11 points, um, four or 14 shooting, four assists and four turnovers. You showed everybody what a marshmallow you are. Wow. Uh, that's so completely fair. I mean, every time the camera was on him, he'd paced on some little wince or grimace as if everybody who played a college sport hasn't played through some kind of injury. Uh, dude looks doughy. I think it's not so much injury as he's not real well conditioned. And uh, yeah, he wanted no piece of this game. I completely agree with, with your wording of that. I think, uh, the committee is going to look back at this one at the inaugural award and say, this is really set the bar for pretend tough guys. Yeah. Not exactly the Jordan flu game for Jerron Cumberland here. Speaking of Jordans, if you look at his 2019 comps on Ken Palm, they start Jordan Crawford and Clay Thompson this year. Jerron Cumberland's top comps are Elijah Bryant. Who can forget him and Sam and Merrill. I don't know who either of those people are know who sam merrill is i'm gonna click on this and instantly know i should have oh yeah yeah he he is utah state (laughs) okay well he his comp for cumberland is from a year where he wasn't as good obviously what about the great uh dudu sanadze (laughs) i mean his name is i'm sorry it's duda that's unfair of me he's from georgia and the one with like tbilisi not the one with like atlanta but yeah, that's who uh, that's who Cumberland's running with this year. I'm assuming that a guy who comes over here from Tbilisi, Georgia, though, is probably a for real tough guy. <laughs> I would imagine. Just um, to yeah, to put a bow on this, Cumberland was a third team All American for CBS Sports preseason. Um, the way he played in that game, I wouldn't say he was first team All Cincinnati. They were better without him on the floor. Um, but the part that i don't know i think it was confusing more than anything was that naj was going up and down the floor just giving it to him all game with the trash talk and at no point did he like raise his game (laughs) he just like ran up and down the court like yeah (laughs) 
You guys are doing a lot better. <laughs> yeah, guys. <laughs> well, woe is me. We're going to lose. He just didn't even try to like approach the challenge that Naj was given to him. It was like, so he, weird. He was not interested in riding into the Valley of Death with the Brave 600. He was like, wow, if I go at it, I'm going to end up on the YouTube reel. So let me hide here in the corner and then shoot a 28-foot pull-up that catches nothing but glass. Yeah, I mean, it one was, yeah. behind the arc. I, I don't like Keith Williams, but credit to him. He at least tried to play the game. Cumberland just spotted up. And I'm almost half-heartedly at times. The one that sticks out to me is a 15-footer yeah, he, that he did make that he almost like apathetically tossed up at the rim. Like, eh, whatever. <laughs> He was shooting a lot of jump shots just off of dead straight legs and not like, ah, I'm hurt, but just like, meh. He looked like every time he was shooting, he was also calling his stepdad by his first name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to call you dad, Brick. (laughs) (laughs) That is actually a brilliant, if somewhat unintentional segue to, uh, the chatter I've read on UC message boards because there's nothing I love better than reading those salty guys after a loss about how John Brandon is wasting uh, Jerron Cumberland's senior year because they can't get along. And I mean, he does look like somebody who's playing for his stepdad who's definitely not his real dad. (laughs) Anyway, um, we're not going to go any further down that rabbit hole for the sake of not getting sued so um now we've we've kind of recapped the crosstown shootout i could talk probably for another hour about the crosstown shootout because i love it when we win the crosstown shootout um but looking ahead what does xavier have to do uh between now and conference play beginning on december 30th to put themselves in a good position joel and don't just be like win Mm. (laughs) no so (laughs) To get an idea of the leverage of the remaining. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's a slap in the face, (laughs) which I deserve. Um, So the the point with the remaining uh, non-conference games, I think is illustrated by what we've got in conference. And going back to my boy, Warren Nolan, I'm looking at his his kind of hand calculations for the net. Xavier's going to end up having probably – 12, 13, 14 conference games that fall into quadrants one or two. And uh, probably seven or eight in Q1 and the remainder in Q2 of those, uh, depending on how things rise and fall between now and then. So they are going to have their chances to polish the resume in conference. What affects the the non-conference about that is that like everybody in the the Big East, Xavier's done really well in the non-conference. And the better your non-conference looks, uh, the better a win or the not as bad a loss you are once it gets into conference play. So if X wants to uh, make a run at what we think their ceiling is, it's going to have to start out by taking care of business in these last three games. Uh, particularly Western Carolina, is a, that's just a hiccup that they can't afford. They're, that's a at-home going to be a q4 game wake forest i think is the potential landmine here they're you know 94th in the ken palm they're 200 and something in the rpi not doing that great in the the calculated net either but xavier's playing uh you know at their place and you know those can be tricky games especially coming off of finals week fortunately wake is also coming off of a long layoff and exams but if you want to circle one of the remaining games, I'd circle that one right there. Off of off of the shootout, off of finals week, if Xavier can keep the focus that they've had and stay locked in, especially on the defensive end, and go out there and take care of business at Wake, that sets them up well. The, the game at TCU is going to be more or less a coin toss. It's a tough major conference team at their place. If they can handle business against Wake and Western Carolina, TCU is basically house money. But if they win that one, they have a really good resume. Uh, the conference play, where Ken Palm currently has them at 10 and 8. Uh, if you look at the big teams playing really well right now, the top half of the league is going to beat each other up. 
Butler is the only team who's predicted by Ken Palm to win more than 11 games, and they've only got 12. So if X goes in sitting on 12 and 1, even 10 and 8 in conference gets them to 22 wins before the Big East tournament. So these these three games, I think, are going to be what separates Xavier from the potential of having a protected seed and playing somewhere in the Eastern time zone, maybe somewhere like Cleveland, and falling into that six, seven, eight, nine range where you know you're going to be shipped out somewhere. You're going to be playing against somebody playing a lot closer to home in your second game with a chance to go to the Sweet 16 if you can win the first one. So these are these are big games for what Xavier's resume ceiling is going to be by the time the end of the year comes around. You look at then Dayton, who's also having a great year and comes from the conference that we left and kind of compare what they have done and what they have in front of them compared to what we do. They've got good wins over Georgia and Virginia Tech and St. Mary's, not quite the quality that Xavier has, but they have Drake, North Texas, Colorado, Grambling, to uh, finish up the non-conference schedule. I'm sorry, the North Florida as well. That's four teams that are below 130th and Colorado. So they can't afford to lose really any of those games. They got to knock off Colorado to have that big win because heading into conference play in the A-10, they've got number 152, number 262, number 206 for their first three games they don't have any cushion built in. It takes me back to those days where we would try to stack wins in the non-con and then roll through the A-10, hoping that we didn't trip over something. Whereas now, you know, we take care of business in a couple games. If we win that TCU game, I'm going to be real close to going crazy with what I think we can do. But, I mean, are there bad losses in the Big East this year? Asking that as an honest question, maybe St. John's at home could be a bad loss. I think um, I think Providence at home is going to end up being a bad loss. Well, right, but I'm saying I think Providence at home is going to end up being a rare resume banana peel that you can get in conference play in the Big East. I think DePaul being solid this year is really going to help prop up the bottom of the conference, um, but I still think that somebody's going to lose to Providence at some point at home, and that is going to be galling for them because I don't think many people are going to lose to Providence in the Big East this year. Wow! Right now, uh, Joel's Joel's new guy Warren. Yeah, Nolan, I don't know how you come across these people if you just Google like names until one of them is a college basketball guy. But he has Providence as a Q four game at home. Boom! So yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and if you even if you look at his projection, he doesn't project them getting out of the. I mean, I think he's got them projected at like 160 something when when it's all said and done, which is still a Q3 game at home. So there's a there's your Big East landmine because Providence um, is garbage. Yeah, just one tidbit on TCU. I think that would be a good win because I think um, they're gonna be in the Big 12. They'll they'll pick up some good wins in the big 12 and their coach is Jamie Dixon who UCLA offered the job to after they had offered it to Mick Cronin. And then he said no. So they went back to Mick Cronin. So that's fun. <laughs> You're right. That is fun. So rumor has it that Jamie Dixon's name was actually on the door at UCLA and then TCU would not lower his buyout. And they were like, Ooh, Mick. Buddy, <laughs> you want it, and he still wanted it. So, anyway, good for good for Jamie Dixon and Mick Cronin, though they're both making a lot more money than I am. Um, so Brad, can you talk us through uh, the the news that broke? I guess it was probably yesterday um, about the Skip Prosser Classic. Yeah. So, I don't know if you guys ever watch the news or are on Twitter or any sort of social media or if you just live locked in a room, which might be the way to go. But the world is not necessarily filled with heartwarming stories right now, and this kind of is one. Uh, Skip's son, Mark, coaches the Western Carolina Catamounts, and what Xavier and Wake Forest did was get together and expand the Skip Prosser Classic brand 
to include Xavier's game against the Catamounts this year. So he'll get to play on the court with his dad's name on it and the Skip Prosser Classic branding and everything. I'm sorry, he'll get to coach. If he puts himself in, that'd really be cool, though. Honestly, yeah. goosebumps, goosebumps <laughs> moment for me if he does that. Um, right. You know, he's going to get to coach on it. He's <laughs> going to get to take part of it and everything. And it maybe isn't a big story in that Western Carolina is not very good. They play Piedmont two games after they play Xavier. That's not a D1 game. I, yeah, well, they beat Brian, who was I their other. Beat him. Not just Brian, like who's on this podcast, though. I do think they could probably take him as well. Um, Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Are you serious? Okay. What if my son cloned him and it was all I'd Brian's? I'd have to look at warrennolan.com or johncroft.com or just some other twodudenames.com to find more analysis of it no but i mean it's a nice thing that xavier and wake forest have done i think it deserves a little bit of recognition that with a lot of ugliness going on they did something cool prosser's an up-and-coming coach they've western carolina's already won as many games this year as they've won last year they've made nearly 100 point jump in the ken palm he's doing some things with them he's not afraid to schedule obviously in that he has xavier on the schedule they went uh to georgia and lost. They went to Florida State and lost by five. Florida State's currently 15th in the Ken Palm. So he's got a team. They can play a little bit of ball. They can scare you. And Xavier and Wake did the right thing. Threw that out. He's going to get to play on the court. Man, I just said it again. I really hope he plays now because I predicted it twice. He's going to get to coach on the court with his dad's name on it. And I think that's going to be a cool moment for him and a cool moment for the city. So here's some uh, fun trivia. Western Carolina's big gun is a dude by the name of Mason Faulkner. Mason Faulkner played his first two years for John Brannan at Northern Kentucky University before transferring to Western Carolina, which brings us to something interesting that we were discussing before we went live. Chris Vogt, obviously from Cincinnati, he had a, a pretty decent game Saturday, all things considered. Uh, He ended up with 10 points and eight rebounds. He also transferred from Northern Kentucky to D1 uh, to follow his coach, John Brandon, who is now playing him way more at Cincinnati than he ever did at Northern Kentucky. Last year, he only um, played in 31.5 of the available minutes. Uh, This year, he's almost at 70% uh, of the, sorry, 31.5% of the available minutes. And this year, it's doubled, basically, his playing time. Can you explain that? Um, following a coach from one school to another and him at the higher level being like, now you're my guy, did not trust me in the Horizon League, but now you're my horse. Maybe this is just a referendum on the uh, the AAC. He was like, I can't ride this dude in the Horizon League, but if I get him a couple games in the non-con, he's going to dominate back this to your stepdad analogy, And this is like the stepdad with the stepson that he likes, and he's just kind of flaunting it in front of Jaron Cumberland. Like, look, <laughs> playing this dude a ton. No. <laughs> he was garbage in the Horizon League, but he yeah. like leans down like, the bench and he's like, Jared, nah, Chris again. You come on in, buddy. <laughs> Cumberland just eats another Snickers or something. Chris like goes up for a hug when Cumberland's not around and, and Brandon <laughs> pushes him away. He's like, it's not about you. Yeah. I'm just to bother Jared and vote walk. A little bit sad, but a little bit like, okay, whatever. I was theorizing that turn. it's possible Chris Vogt does not realize it's the same coach. And he walks into practice just bagging on his coach from the year before. Like, <laughs> yeah, man, that guy never played me. And now look at me. I'm doing awesome. <laughs> oh, he's sitting on his couch unemployed. He's not there anymore. <laughs> but that is speculation. <laughs> that is probably not true. I'd say there's like an 85% chance that that's not actually the case. Um, but I'm holding out for that 15%. So anyway, um, some of you guys like us enough to uh, tweet at us uh, questions for our podcast. Uh, we're trying to put a stop to that with being annoying, but some of you keep doing it anyway. So at large, Tim Hortons um, is always very interactive on Twitter. Um, says thought process and your predictions on number one and number 13 uh, Jer, if you're listening, that's Paul Scruggs and Najee Marshall. They're both very good players staying for the senior year or going to the draft. So, Joel, what are your thought processes and predictions on if, if this is the 
last we're seeing of Scruggs and Marshall uh, this year with Xavier? Well, I think, uh, you know, Trayvon Blewett is a good example of how an excellent college player doesn't always make uh, somebody the NBA wants to draft, specifically not somebody they want to draft early. So you got to wonder what role is each of these guys going to fill uh, at the next level. And they've both got a couple, couple shortcomings at that level. Najee's obvious problem is with his jump shot. It's a, a pace and space league, and buddy, he's got he's got pace to burn. He's long. He he plays defense. He can board, but he doesn't like really have a lot of range. And you know his four for eleven against UC was good for a couple reasons. One was that he made four of them. The other one was after his eleventh missed, you could almost visibly see it click to him that I should probably stop shooting threes, and then he just did. But I think what the league is going to want to see is somebody in Najee's height and skill set, unless he really leans into the, the point forward thing, he's going to have to develop a, a reliable jump shot. And if he demonstrates that down the stretch, um, just pretend you're a Cleveland Indians fan with Francisco Lindor and enjoy him because he's gone. But if that, if that doesn't happen, then I wouldn't be surprised to see Najee back next year. I think Najee's got a better chance of jumping early than Paul Scruggs does because I think I think Scruggs is a tweener on the next level. He's not quite uh, shooty enough to play shooting guard. He's not quite tall enough to to be the two or the three at an NBA level, and he doesn't quite have the the handling and distribution chops that they want to see out of the one. So I uh, you know I love both those guys and I hope they both come back, uh, and I think they will. But I think there's a, a better chance that that Najee goes than that Scruggs does. So I'll call it I'll call it sixty percent. We get to enjoy a senior year from Najee and seventy five percent that Paul's back. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Go ahead, Brad. I got to admit that I was watching the second half of that crosstown shootout and watching Najee dog Cumberland up and down the court and basically just take that game over. And he did it in the first half too. And thinking, well, this is a great way to go out because if he plays like that. He's in the league. I mean, it's that simple. If he demonstrates he can knock down some outside shots and also stifle people on defense and everything, and if he plays like that, then maybe he's going to the league with the neat little final four hat he can wear. Okay. Yeah, I think if we get eight out of every 11 of Najee's two-pointers to go in the rest of the way, uh, I'll be fine saying goodbye to him because we're probably going to ride that pretty well. I mean, I don't, with the caveat, I don't watch the NBA at all. And I don't really understand what NBA teams look for because I don't know how NBA teams play. For me, it's not necessarily would they get drafted right away or anything like that. I mean, there's money to be made in Europe at this point. A lot of Xavier players go to Europe. Jalen Reynolds left a year early to go to Europe. um, And he probably knew he was not going to get drafted uh, into the NBA draft. Um, and so I don't really know what's going on in those guys' head. You know, I think it's a question of, uh, do you want to stay in school in a year? Um, do you want to go make money playing basketball somewhere? Because I think both of them for sure, if they leave after this year, will make good money playing basketball somewhere next year. Um, it just, in my opinion, probably wouldn't be the NBA, but I don't really know. Uh, for Scruggs, I think the thing with him is he's so good at this level because he's bigger than a lot of the guards you see at this level. Um, he posts people up so well. His his game in the lane is just, to me, crazy. If I could do that, some of the things he did, like that that take he, he had in the Crosstown shootout where he really didn't um, force himself into the game that much, but he, he drove – the left side and then went under the rim and finished with his right hand. I would try that every time. If I ever did one, you know, I'd be like, here we go again. <laughs> and I throw the ball off the bottom of the rim and knock myself out probably on my third attempt, but it wouldn't stop me from trying it. Um, but I don't know that he's going to be able to post people up at the next level because at the next level, obviously um, the guards are going to be a lot bigger. 
you know, he's not going to have that size advantage that he enjoys at this level. Uh, but I don't really know. Uh, I think the main question is, do they want to stay in school another year or do they want to go make money? Because both of those guys after this year are going to be able to go make money somewhere. Um, pretty good money um, playing basketball. And I can't really knock a kid for wanting to do that. Um, if that's what they've dreamed about their whole lives. Um, so I, I'm less sure that they're coming back than you just because I think they both have the ability to go make money and that's hard to turn down. So, um, at Leaster bro, um, Lee Bronstrop is his Christian name, but I like Twitter to, Twitter handles. So Leaster Bro says, what will the rules of Bishop Tandy and Ramsey be moving forward? Obviously Tandy only got seven minutes of crosstown shootout. We did not see Bishop what we saw Bishop and Ramsey when it would pan to Xavier's bench, but neither of them got into the game. Um, so what did that tell us about those three guys' roles with Coach Steele going to a shorter rotation for that game? I think uh I'll jump in with Tandy here. Since uh, Kiki has been healthy and ready to play, um, it's just been three games, but I feel like Quentin Gooden's production has improved. And two of those games were against Lipscomb and Green Bay, so maybe take this with a grain of salt. And I spent like eight minutes bagging on Cincinnati earlier, so another grain of salt for you. But Q was very good against Cincinnati. You know, he... Shot three and nine from behind the arc against Lipscomb and Green Bay, which if we get that out of cue, um, you know, I'm happy with that. But he gives Gooden, I think, a chance to do the things that he is good at. And also a chance to maybe sit on the bench every once in a while and just get his legs back under him. So Kiki Tandy's role is being the guy who can come off the bench and not be a, a meteoric free fall in guard production. You know, without him, if we take Q out, then we can have Najee bring the ball up, which he's proven capable of doing. We can have Scruggs bring the ball up, which he's proven capable of doing. But neither of those guys is at his best when they're working on the ball. Tandy's a guy who can work on or off the ball. He can be a straight-up scorer if Q's on the floor. He can give Q a breather and give us an actual point guard out there uh, when when Q takes a break. So I think, you know, Tandy's got a bright future ahead of him. I think right now he is the guy who, as his legs get under him, can keep the level of play in our backcourt up while giving Q a chance to do the things that he's good at and have fresh legs in the last, you know, four minutes of the game. I still. think – where Daniel Ramsey can earn his time if he's going to get it is on the glass. Um, we kind of got crushed on the glass against UC. Uh, we gave up 13 offensive rebounds, which was a lot because they were missing a lot of shots, but that's also a 31% rate. They scored 29 points in the last 10 minutes of the game. Now we answered that with 22. And again, we're in celebration mode for a couple minutes there. But being able to seal off, grab a couple boards, and just really choke that game out would have been nice. Um, and Ramsey's got the body to be able to do that. I think a lot with him, he's still playing himself into shape. I mean, the dude's been hurt. It takes a little while to get back into – there's in shape, and then there's basketball shape. So the role for Daniel Ramsey, I think, would be – you know, demonstrate that you can be a monster on the glass right now, stick in a couple putbacks and, you know, he might be an eight, 10 minute guy for his freshman year. And I'd consider that a success, but let him get out there, get rolling again and see what he can do. But, but he's got to recover from his injury first. And I think that coach Steele agreed with most of us, maybe the crosstown shootouts, not the place to do that. What a, what do we have for Daniel Ramsey if Dontarius James is getting – I mean, he got part of a minute in the shootout. He's gotten a couple cameos as an energy guy. I just – I'm not sure what Daniel Ramsey's role with this current roster composition is. I mean, either you, either you got to think when he's healthy, he's just flat out better than Dontarius James is, or – 
we somehow squirreled away some minutes at the four that Dontarius James couldn't get, but Daniel Ramsey could. And if neither of those answer is a red shirt. I, I mean, it very well could be. I think they have different skill sets. Right now, James is at least starting to paint himself in as a three-point threat. He's taking eight of his 11 shots from out there. He is getting on the glass. Some of those are garbage time boards, but and this is going to hurt Bry a little bit. I do think Daniel Ramsey is probably just flat out better than Dontarius James. <clears throat> he's not had a chance to demonstrate that yet. I'm not sure he's going to get to this year, but I was a little concerned, honestly, with how short the bench was against UC, and obviously it worked out. But Fremantle and Moore played 20 and 22. Uh, Kiki played seven. Dontarius played a handful of seconds, and that was the bench production. Um, at seven, seven worked for the UC game. Seven's not going to work to get through the entire Big East slate. So hopefully, either Dontarius James keeps it going and he really is starting to look like he's putting it together a little bit, or Daniel Ramsey's ready in that spot to add some. I mean, he's definitely. DJ's thick. I think Daniel Ramsey's like thick with two C's kind of thick. <laughs> to be honest, he's going to be our expert on this. Um, so I'm, I'm going to defer to him. Um, he's the expert on thickness, how, however many C's you, you yeah, put in I there. I don't think any of us are really young enough to be able to definitively say. So that leaves Da Bishop and you, Bri. What do you think of Da Bishop? I think he was unfortunate not to get in the crosstown shootout, but his issue um, for a lot of the season has been he he brings a lot of energy, but he does not always focus it that well, um, and he can be turnover prone. Um, obviously, let's see here against Florida, um, he played five minutes, turned the ball over twice. Uh, did knock down two free throws, but since the Florida game, which was on November 24th, he's played 11 minutes, um, and all of those came against Lipscomb. Um, he didn't play against Green Bay or Cincinnati. I don't know if there's an injury issue there or what, but you saw how many minutes he got toward the beginning of the season, and it looked like he was starting to settle in again a, a little bit against Florida. It really went pretty badly for him. Um and so I would like to see him get into uh, a couple of these games before conference pre- play begins and just get some confidence back. Uh, because, I mean, when, during toward the start of the year, he was not knocking down his three-point shots, which is supposed to be his calling card. He's 2 of 15 on the year so far. But he was playing with a lot of energy, and he was hitting the boards really well, especially on the defensive end. So I think he has something to offer uh, if not just as an energy guy, if he can't get the shot falling this year. Um, But I think he needs his confidence back. So um, I would hope that he can get into um, probably the Wake or the Western Carolina game and maybe see a couple shots fall, but but mostly just get his confidence back a little bit because I think that Florida game probably didn't do a lot for him um, in that area. Yeah, Coach, uh, Coach Steele, when he was asked after the Green Bay game, why Damir didn't play in that game said he's got to earn it in practice and left it at that. So I don't watch a lot of practices because I have a full-time job and don't live in Cincinnati. So whatever was going on then uh, we've had some time since. So I'd like to like to see him back out there against Wake because I do think he adds an element of energy uh, from the wing that, that Xavier really feeds off of. Like you said, He's shooting four of 24 on the season at four of 13 from the free throw line, neither of which are good numbers. That one was for you, Jer. But he, I think he's a good player. I think he's going to have a good career at Xavier. And, you know, the sooner we can get him pointed in the right direction and back out there. And I mean, those numbers, they're bad right now. I just don't see giving a guy a D1 scholarship if he's really, I mean, if, you know, 22% 22% from the line or from two point range is the best he can do. I know he's going to improve from here, um, but I think it's a confidence thing with him. And we saw it a lot um, with my guy, Larry Austin Jr. I think his confidence is his freshman year really 
uh, came and went quite a bit as well. And so, um, and toward the end of the year, he didn't play very much because he didn't have a lot of confidence going. So I think it is a big confidence thing. Speaking of confidence, uh, I'm confident Brad is wrong about Don Perry and James. Um, <laughs> defensive rebound percentage in Tier A games, 90.9. So that is 9.1% worse than the best you can possibly do, Brad. How are you so ignorant? It's hard to Don't argue against that. So basically, if an opponent misses, right. they, everybody should just clear out down the court except for yeah. DJ's going mean, to outlet it. The man hoovers defensive rebounds. <laughs> against tier A competition, which Xavier has a lot of. I don't see how you don't see that as valuable, but you and I look at the game of basketball a lot differently, um, in my opinion. So I, for instance, liked making shots. Anyway, KJ Hines, at KJ underscore Hines, sorry, um, says Jason Carter and what you expect from him once he gets fully comfortable with his role on the team. Um, so Brad, can you go in a little bit about the one Jason Carter we have currently while Joel's son works on his clone technology and what your expectations are for him going forward? Um, changed from what they were at the start of the season. I thought that he was going to come in and not quite be Zach Hankins, but be that immediate impact transfer, um, offensive threat <laughs> with the added benefit that he could knock down the occasional three. Now, um, I, he's demonstrated that he's going to struggle to find shots in this offense. And when he's gotten them, at least this year, he's struggled to knock them down. He's shooting 37% inside the arc and 22% behind it, both of those in pretty decent sample sizes. But on defense, he's been excellent. Uh, high energy, got his hands on a lot of passes against UC and he has been for probably the last two or three weeks. He gets in the passing lanes. He is a nuisance to put it, I mean, to the other team. And he's been a lot more careful with the ball here recently. He turned the ball over twice against Green Bay, once against Lipscomb, but both of that in pretty significant amount of minutes. He had four assists against Cincinnati now it looks to me like he's slotting into that kind of glue guy role where he does a little bit of everything. He's reliable from the line. He can eat you up 27 minutes. And as long as Naj, Scruggs, and Tyreek are clicking, you don't need him to put points in. Whereas at, at the same time, he has the ability. I still think he's going to have a game this year where he gets 20 because he's got it in him. Um, I see him right now as a glue guy, maybe with a chance to build on that toward being something else and he's yet another guy who is still trying to round into complete basketball shape yeah i think the the key with um kj heinz question uh even though it was kind of a statement um he he seems like he is getting more comfortable in what he is to this team i think at the start of the year he pressed a lot to try and find his shots in the offense um and i mean He's a good offensive player, I think, but with the way that, that Xavier runs the offense through the post, uh, I think he's going to get be most effective for them if he's able to distribute out of the low post, which he did very well on Saturday against UC. Um, and he led a couple runouts, you know. He, he caught that lob above the rim from Scruggs and um, – gentlemanly <laughs> non-dunker. Uh, a rare show of mercy. <laughs> so Jason Carter, a gracious competitor, decided not to show up his opponent by dunking on them. Tyreek had no qualms about dunking on them, but you know what? Jason Carter, gentle giant. So anyway. I think Carter probably yeah, just didn't fair. want to steal Tyreek's moment. <laughs> I think that's it. What's the out of Carter? Carter is a guy that you, at this point in time, have to have on the floor in winning time. He, like Brad said, he's shown himself to be more than capable defensively, very active. He can scoop up a loose ball in a, or a long rebound and take it you know, between the arcs for you. And despite what his turnover rate would tell me, I'm reasonably confident in his ability to, to convey the ball over that distance well, and make a good decision. And lately... On the on the wings or the high post, 
he has been able to to find the guys moving around him and get him the ball in good positions. So I think he is he's sliding into that role to where you know now instead of being the best scorer on the floor, he's playing with two or three guys who might be better scorers than him. And I think he's got a high enough basketball IQ to find those dudes in the places they like to be and get them the ball. And, you know, he's also nails from the line. He's not a big man who, if he rakes down the board, the other team's just going to collapse and mug him and hope you give him, give him the ball back on a one-and-one. You know, he's, his last two games, he shot three or four from the line, and those were disappointing those performances. Were his first two misses this year, yeah. He's – Right. I mean, when he goes to the line, I feel really good. About I, I think a big thing happen. for him, too, we talked about confidence and the Florida game going back to Demir Bishop. It would have been easy for Carter to turtle up after that Florida game um, with the way he played, especially toward the end. Um, and even though it was a pretty good game overall for him, you know, that one big mistake kind of stuck out for a lot of people when they looked back at that game. But since then, he's played some of his, his best basketball of the year. His 0 for 6 from 3 against Green Bay notwithstanding. But as far as finding people and finding a role in the offense, he's actually done a lot better. And I think it speaks to um, he's determined to be a valuable player for this team. And I think um, going forward, we're going to see more of that. Um, And obviously, you know, going into next year, I'm very excited for him to get two years at Xavier. So Joseph Booth on Facebook uh, where does each player stand versus expectations, especially the freshmen and transfers? Should we expect current output to continue, or can we expect significant improvement? So really the only two people who fall into that category would be Bryce Moore and Zach Fremantle as far as freshmen and transfers. So um, I guess the question uh, I want to kind of ask here on Joseph's behalf, have, with him having not seen our script, who has um, – maybe exceeded your expectations the most this year. And we'll go ahead and start with Joel, because I think we all know where Joel's going with this. And Brad, you can just edit this out because we know he's going to say something creepy, but anyway, Joel, go ahead. Which Xavier player do you want to, do you want to fly the airplane into his mouth and give him his. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, that's a dangerous segue right there. (laughs) Yeah. I know. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know where you were going with that. And at all. I was like, "Oh, that could be taken yeah, a different way." Gold. I was talking about feeding a baby, everybody. Just so you know. <laughs> Definitely. So, do we need to pause so Brad can edit this oh, back no, in sure. smoothly? <laughs> okay, there it is. Remail. You don't think that's good content? He has been. You know, we talked, kind of flirted around with the idea of him being an immediate impact big in our preview and from what I saw in Spain and what I knew of him uh, just on the recruiting trail. And after he signed, I knew he'd be high energy. I knew he'd be high IQ. I didn't know he'd be this good this quickly. I was hoping that, you know, he might get that 10 to 12 minutes a game roll run out there, have a game where he threw in, you know, eight and grabbed four boards or something. And in April, we'd be writing a, is Zach Fremantle going to explode as a sophomore kind of article. But he, like the touch he has demonstrated around the rim with both hands has been good. He's got a little bit of range on the jumper, so he can, you know, he snuck into a kind of a short corner soft spot when UC tried to zone, knock down a baseline J, and his his energy is off the charts. And, you know, I've been I've been impressed with the way that he's played. So, you know, I could... I could wax eloquent about him for a long time, but what I'm going to say is that I knew he had potential for him to be a good player for this program, but he's been a stud right I off the think rip. My expectation for him was kind of close to like a freshman Sean O'Mara, where he doesn't play a whole ton because he's got a senior big in front of him, but um, shows flashes and obviously has some things to work out. But yeah, he's much more polished than I expected him to be. So, Brad, what about Bryce Moore? What what have you seen from him? I mean, at the risk of just kind of fluffing everybody here. Great. Another great use of terms there. Um, Bryce Moore has been... <laughs> There's not a lot of <laughs> redeeming you can do with that. <laughs> um, Bryce Moore has been better than I thought he would be. 
um, what our team needed last year, the defense was good near the end. We did not have that dog that you put on somebody and just said, okay, we're not going to worry about this guy because somebody's locking him down. And I think more has demonstrated he can do that. And I think that's rubbing off on guys. Um, I've not seen Quentin Gooden play defense like this before. And I think part of it is because you can see during timeouts or um, out of bounds situations, Moore and Najee Marshall are running the team, getting them where they need to be. And then Bryce Moore picks his guy up like inside his shirt because he is confident that no one is taking him off the dribble. Um, throw in 36, 36% behind the arc, uh, not turning the ball over hardly at all. He's rock solid. He is a three and D guy, uh, which is, I'm guessing exactly what we brought him in to do. He's just fit in a little better than I thought he would. And he's brought that needed kind of nastiness though. He brings it with like a really, he seems even watching him play. You're like, and that guy just seems like a nice guy. I don't know if you guys know. Right. Yeah. He looks like he's on his way to choir practice and he's just going to stop off right. at this I game and ruin someone's day. First. I thought they had the corner on him. And every time they took another dribble more was just about a half step faster. And he just rode the guy side saddle the whole way down the court like saying there's no you can imagine Q or Najee barking at him the whole time telling him you can't beat me but more just did it with like this really pleased smile on his face like oh, I'm gonna beat him to this spot now too he seems like a nice guy yeah who's just ruining people's nights out there and I love him for it yeah side note one of my favorite parts of the crosstown shootout was that we never really bothered to waste Bryce <laughs> more on Jaron Cumberland we were like, this guy's the best defender? Uh, yeah, you're fat little all-star. Somebody else is going to guard him. <laughs> what a waste. Well, uh, yeah, I think as far as expectations go, I think one guy who um, returned with probably some high expectations, who I think reasonably, I think he exceeded them, is Paul Scruggs. Um, just the way that he has found his spots in the offense really effectively this year with Scruggs. It's always tempting to look at his raw numbers and just be like, wow, he could do a lot more than he does, but he play, he takes games over when he needs to take them over. And he um, helps highlight the other guys on the roster when it calls for it. I think as well as anyone I've seen on Xavier um, since I've been watching them, you know, so like in the Crosstown shootout, only took seven shots, seven points, um, played more of a distributor role, and obviously was a huge part of the defensive effort. Uh, but he also has demonstrated the ability to take a game over. Um, at times, that UConn game, he was basically our whole offense. He pretty much brought us back single-handedly against Florida. Um, and so I think he has shown the ability to read games better than he did last year. And I think that's going to be huge for Xavier as they go into conference play uh, because everybody's going to key on Najee Marshall, obviously, uh, because they just watched him tear the heart out of his crosstown rival and stomp it at midcourt. And so I think Scruggs is going to be a huge player for Xavier um, in his ability to step up when needed to and his ability to, read the game and find out when that needs to be the case. I think he's also also, usually the, the first guy on the team to realize maybe we should stop shooting long jumpers. <laughs> he's shooting 63% from two this year, which I think speaks to the fact that he's been committed to getting to the rim um, more than he was last year. Last year, he only shot 52% inside the arc. So obviously you add 11% to your two point percentage, you're doing something differently. And I think it's that he is more committed to driving, more committed to getting to the rim when he um, gets the ball and decides he needs to score. So next up, um, we got a couple of last quick hits. The the master of reality, um, who uh, a huge Xavier, huge Cleveland Indians fan. So he says, is there anyone on UC we can hate either present or future? This is uncharted territory for me. Um, now, obviously, we have a guy that uh, we've talked about quite a bit in this podcast. That is UC's president, um, but he is unfortunately a senior. I'd love to watch him mope through like six more crosstown <laughs> shootings. That's not going to happen. Uh, so who can you guys pick out that really, uh, really bugged you on Saturday? Oh, man, one of my favorite least favorites was uh, John Brandon's own stepson, Chris Vote. He just... <laughs> 
like early on in the game, it was like he got a notion in his head that maybe Tyreek wasn't so tough. And, you know, maybe I can come in here and mix it up with the adults. And then he kind of got sent back to the kids' table, and I kind of enjoyed it. But that he just looks like a – and all this to say that, A, we don't legitimately hate people from watching them for 40 minutes. And, B, I don't know Chris Vogt, and I'm sure he's maybe a nice guy. But, C, the way Xavier fans hate Bearcats, I hate Chris Vogt because he looked like a real snot that game. Like maybe, <laughs> like maybe he had gotten a BMW for his 16th birthday and thought that made him something. And so watching him get punched all over and have to leave with his tail between his legs after they lost just warmed the cockles of my heart. And if we get to see that a couple more times from him, I'll be a happy panda every time. Uh, yeah. I use the term sports hate because again, like I don't, Chris vote, maybe if we had to go on a long car ride with him, would be a great guy. And, you know, we could give him the ox court or something. I really didn't enjoy Micah Adams Woods. He made two threes and acted like both of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. See, we're giving our guy some solid input here. He acted like both of them had won the NCAA tournament and put your hand down, go play some defense. You're getting run off the court and there's not a soul out here that you could guard. I mean, seriously you're a freshman meet you had 10 points none of them mattered congrats we'll see you again next year then i'm gonna go with zach harvey who xavier recruited and he went to uc what a dirtbag he did not play saturday but (laughs) it was actually his, his first game he did not appear in all season speaking of people who were recruited by uc and xavier looks like samari curtis is transferring um, and rumor has it he's coming back to Ohio. So hopefully Samari finds somewhere where where he can enjoy his college basketball because, I mean, these kids just want to play college basketball. And um, as much as we invest in hating certain programs and, you know, not liking certain players, I don't really wish ill on any of these people. Um, maybe with a few exceptions <laughs> <laughs> unless they punch Kenny freeze in the face, in which case all bets right. are right. going to say like Ruben Patterson. I didn't care for on <laughs> pretty personal level, but anyway, we're going to move on here. Um, a question is circulating. Uh, you guys have seen the video obviously where they um, took Ed's dunk um, on UC from the 2016 season. And Q's dunk from Saturday. So which one do you guys prefer? Um, We're going to go ahead and start with Brad. I got to go with Ed's dunk. For one, it was contested. For two, Octavius Ellis had been running his mouth that whole game. And UC fans were talking about how he blocked. I think his block rate was close to 10% coming into that game. And here comes this spindly little point guard and just crams it on him. And I mean, I was listening to that game while directing traffic. Um, very safely, obviously, none of you were involved in an accident, and I jumped up and down, um, unabashedly because I mean, he that was two dudes rising up to meet each other with best man winning, and Ed just hammered it on him. I mean, it wasn't even close. I think that is the moment where Xavier became the bully of the crosstown shootout. Now, when you see wins, it is unexpected as opposed to maybe as we were growing up even though since i was born xavier has the better record there was always that expectation that uc was the the bigger program i think that changed i wrote an article talking about how that changed when ed crushed octavius ellis to me that flipped the whole thing we're the best there's no question yeah i got to agree with that for all the reasons you said and just for how happy ed looked and, but I don't think it's the runaway that, that people might make it out to be. So I'm going to make a couple of points in Q's favor here. Shocking. You know, first of all, everybody always loved Ed. There was no, you know, fan base based adversity for him. When, when he caught that ball at the top of the key, everybody's heart swelled and he yacked on him and there goes my hero. <laughs> Q, for whatever reason, and by for whatever reason, I could name the reasons, but I'm not gonna. There are people who just don't like him, or at least don't like his game. And, you know, that moment for him as a senior and what he knows is his last shootout to 
have played and worked and scouted UC long enough to know when they make their defensive call what it means. And he said he heard them call out a certain word. He knew they were going to try to force him. And so he put his defender on skates, and it was just him and Chris Vogt under the uh, free throw line. And so he showed Chris Vogt a clean pair of heels and punched it on everybody. So, I mean, Ed's Ed's is iconic, and it's never going to be topped. And he was just big and long and explosive. But spare a thought for Q's dunk and and what it means to him personally. This was like David Beckham sending, sending England back to the World Cup after he blew a penalty and got thrown out the last time they were there. Yeah, I think that's I'm, a great callback. With Ed, obviously, um, oh, I can make anyway. With Ed, that was a much better UC team too. I mean that that team ended up in the eight nine game. Um, if you guys remember how that one ended with Octavius Ellis holding the ball above the cylinder <laughs> in the final seconds for some reason, I don't know what he was trying to do. Rumor says he was trying to dunk, but why not just dunk it? I don't know. Um, but I mean. If this UC team ends up in the 8-9 game, they need to build John Brandon a big pouty statue out front because this team, not that UC team, that was a much higher – yeah, so it was a, a higher level game. The, the shootout's always a huge game, but, I mean, that one – that was a big win for Xavier for their resume that year. Um, but, yeah, I think there was a certain catharsis for Q – um, because he gets bagged a lot, and I think it's because he's not Ed. You know, Ed, you could throw the ball too, and he was gonna, he was gonna, occasionally just dribble straight through the defense and leave it for somebody to dunk or dunk himself. Um, and I think people get frustrated with Q because he's not a point guard. You can throw it to and say, "Score us fifteen points this game," you know. Um, but certain people love him for what he is. Um, and we all, in that moment, I think all Xavier fans agreed on Q uh, because we were loving him for what he was then, which was the dude dunking all over UC. Um, and then obviously, you know, letting it eat a little bit, which then everybody was like, well, not my on defense. No, he shouldn't have. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Let's just squash that rumor right that, now. If you think that, Dad, you're a nerd. <laughs> so, anyway. so that's going to do it uh, for this episode. Xavier is back in action on Saturday at Wake Forest in game one, I guess, of the, the Skip Prosser Classic. Um, and so we will be back with you next week, uh, bringing you our dispatches and also back with another regular episode. So we will catch you then. <laughs>